0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, uh, the topic of uh, today is um, the the power of humility, and and um, how basically this is the really the the core dynamic of creation. And I want to go into that, but but before I begin, I want to just begin with a completely separate thought, just because uh, it's something I I saw over Shabbos and and it it, it uh, moved me. Um, so we, we read on Shabbos, Parsha Shemini, and uh, Parsha Shemini is a, is, a, is a really interesting Parsha for, for many reasons, but I just want to focus in on one thing. It's, it's where you see in the Torah, finally, the, the actual um, operation of the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle in the desert. And what I mean by that is it, it's, a, it's a Parsha very long in coming, um, at least on a narrative level. Meaning to say that the whole second part of the book of Exodus of Shmos is all about uh, constructing the Mishkan, this this tabernacle. Again, the prototype for the holy temple in Jerusalem, which is which is the portal between heaven and earth. Basically, it's that that connection between heaven and earth. It's likened unto the the neck on a on a human body, which attaches the head to the the body itself. And we know when. Um, Yosef becomes reunited with uh, Binyamin, his brother, they cry on each other's necks. And if you look at the Rashi on that, it says because they were mourning the destruction of the Mishkan and the Besa Migdash that would happen in each other's territories. So there you see that the, this idea of this connective device, which is the Mishkan of heaven and earth, um, really is, is, is put into operation finally in this week's Parsha. And again, just to put it into the context of the, of the five books for a moment, the whole second part of the book of Exodus, of Sefer Shmos, is all about constructing the Mishkan. And then you begin uh, Sefer Vayikra, the next book of the Torah, which is all about the offerings that you bring within the, um, the Mishkan itself. And then you've got Parsha's Tzav, which is the finishing of it again. They're getting ready to use it for real. And then finally, Parsha Shemini, where they're actually bringing an offering into the Mishkan itself. So this is very long in waiting. There's a very large build-up to this. And um, we say that this is on the... Part, Shemini means eight, the number eight. It's on the eighth day. And if you look to Rashi, he makes sure to point out that you understand that that was the first day of the month of Nisan. You may have thought from the number eight, that it was the eighth day of the month of Nisan. But it wasn't. It was the first day of the month of Nisan, which is significant, because the first day of the month of Nisan, we know that there are two opinions in the Torah when the world itself was created. And one of them is on the first day of Nisan. Now, the Mishkan itself was a microcosm of the whole universe. So, in a way, this is sort of like... This is like a... God just It says that God celebrated... When, he, when the Mishkan was finished, like he did when the whole world was finished. So here you see a a wonderful parallel between the world being created on the first day of Nisan and the Mishkan, the tabernacle itself, which was a microcosm of creation, also being dedicated and put into use on that same day, on the first day of Nisan. Now, they were waiting for for the offering to be accepted. And they wanted to make sure, because what the, the whole idea was that that what the the Mishkan was going to um, enact was that the Shekhinah was going to come down and dwell among the Jewish people. Now, the Shekhinah is sort of another fancy way of referencing an aspect of Hashem, of God. But it's a more sort of um, manifest presence, right? And um, we know that there were all sorts of miracles that happened in the Mishkan. So it's very appropriate that the day that it was put into effect was the eighth day, because we know the Maharal brings that eight means above nature, that seven, the world was created in seven days, that's the construct which means nature, that number means nature, the natural order, and the number eight means above the natural order, the miraculous aspect. So the Mishkan then, if you to, to, to sort of contextualize all these thoughts, means that we have, within our dimension here, this simultaneous revelation of the natural order and the godly supernatural order coexisting together, not in contradiction to each other. So that's like this very harmonious presence, which sometimes we're, which not sometimes, we're most of the time, we're alienated from. Like a lot of times this world that we live in is called the world of distance, meaning to say that we don't see God. So here the natural order is for us, to, so to speak, see God. Not that he has a physical presence, but that that this is a place where miracles would take place, and it was clear that Hashem was, was with us, right? So that's why we long for the Beis Amigdash, the reconstruction of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem to this day, and we pray for it all of the time, and we mourn over it, because that state of harmony, which is where we see the ultimate the ultimate reality, which is that this world exists within God and that this dimension itself is saturated with godliness, that becomes fully revealed when there is a Mishkan or a holy temple. And and we lack that, which creates this very jarring sense of exile and estrangement that we experience. So so the symbol that, or the, the event that the Jews were waiting for in the desert Was the offering was brought to the altar to the Mizbeach, and they were waiting to see if it was going to be accepted, and sure enough, a fire comes down from heaven, and accepts it, and if you know the next part, everyone bows down on their faces, and they're just you know overwhelmed you know with the you know with the presence of God basically, you know, and the fact that the Mishkan itself worked, that it worked. It put all this effort into it, and it it actually worked. Okay, but in telling you this, I left out a very big detail. (laughs) Because this is the way it's normally told, right? That the fire came down and people bowed down on their faces. But that's not what it says, actually, in the Torah. It says, the fire came down, and people broke out in glad song, and then they fell on their faces. So that's a huge detail. (laughs) It's a huge, huge detail. And, you know, I showed it to um, our chazin, Yehuda Solomon of Moshe Ben, and, you know, who's grown up with this and has grown up with music and everything like that. Music is, you know, his family's life. And, you know, they brought music to the whole world and, and have done so many amazing things. And he's, you know, lived with the parsha his whole life. He never saw that. Never saw that. And he was like, how is it that... That isn't an essential part of the story, right? And, and the reason why I, I wanted to just begin with this is, is because the information like this, I don't want to call them details because they're more than details. These are very um, stark representations of who we are as a people and what, the, what, 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 what Torah is exactly. That when this moment came down and the fire came down from heaven, from heaven People broke out in song. You see, that role of joyousness is is something that um, that the world and 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 I think, well, let's just say the world in general, but but it, 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 especially I would say the quote-unquote enlightenment has tried to rob religion of, in terms of the way it's represented. In other words. Religion is some sort of oppressive construct, which is trying to take people away from their joy, away from their bliss, and 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 so when you see a detail like the fire coming down, and the Torah is saying that people broke out in song, and then they bow down on their faces, right, as 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 just sort of an act of reverence. Now I ask you, would they have broken? Would they bow down on their faces if they hadn't broke down? If they haven't? hadn't broke out in song? I don't know. Maybe the singing and the joy themselves brought them to this higher level of yira, of awareness, where they felt that that was the next appropriate thing. You know? I don't know. But again, it's sort of like I just want to publicize the singing that took place. Remember, I've mentioned it before, but the Gemara brings this, that after the incredible miracle that happened when who who is one of the, you know, world history's great military leaders, had, he had just vanquished the ten tribes of Israel. When we talk about the lost tribes of Israel, it was because of this man, Sennacherib, who, who, who conquered them and exiled them. Okay, Then he was right on the border of Jerusalem, and he was about to finish the job, God forbid. And at midnight, a plague came and wiped out his entire army. Total miracle. Giant, giant, judaism jewish people saving miracle that took place bless you and it says this is the gomorrah i'm telling you the gomorrah says that that should have been or could have been mashiach at that moment in other words that would have been the great final war that would have been the great final war it makes sense i mean it's got that sounds like the great final war like most of our people have been wiped out at that point or exiled And the job is about to be done, and this great miracle comes, right? And saves us. God saves us. So it says the generation was worthy of Mashiach coming at that point. But the leader also has to be worthy. In other words, you have to have a match between the leader of the generation being worthy and the people being worthy. And sometimes the leader is worthy, but the people aren't worthy. Sometimes the people are worthy, but the leader isn't worthy. Right? So they give this as an example where the leader wasn't worthy, because at that moment, when that miracle happened, he didn't sing. And had he sung, that would have been Mashiach at that point. Okay, so there are many deep explanations. So what does that mean exactly? Okay, but but let's just take it at its most simple face-level value. that, That there's a redemptiveness to song. Right? And you know, if you've, you know, been in that place and this is sort of like the specialty of the happy minion is that singing feeds the soul like in 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 an awesome way and it just it, it lifts you up to that that number eight if you will it you 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 are able to transcend right so much of the physicality of this world and your soul just leads you up when you sing why why should that be I don't know but You know, I always quote you the Torah from the Tikkuni Zohar, that, you know, really, everything, all of the Torah, you know, it's all, as we were saying, microcosms within microcosms within microcosms. Everything, the whole Torah can be fit into the first word of the Torah. Right? And the Tikkuni Zohar is like like hundreds of explanations of what the word breishis means. Okay? But one of the arrangements of the letters of breishis, if you use all the letters but rearrange them, in a different way. It, it spells out the word, the word Breshis, right? With with beginnings or in the beginning, however you want to ex- translate it. Breshis is the, also the words, shiras, olive base, the song of the olive base. And we know with our mystical tradition, God created the world with the olive base, with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which if you want to think about it in a more physics-oriented way, that each of the letters are basically different energies, basically, different wavelengths. God combined all of these energies together and created the world. But it's shiras al the In other words, the, the, root, the, the, the root dynamic of creation itself was created with song. And so it makes sense that with song, we're able to essentially access the blueprint of creation and, and bring it up again, right? The roots of creation. So, so song is not a simple thing. Song is something that was implanted. In fact, Reb Shlomo says, God didn't just speak the world into existence, God sang the world into existence. And you see it in this word, Shiras olive base, in the word Breshis. So, so this level of joy, this level of joy, you know, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov, you know, the whole, all the different Hasidic um, dynasties, they, they all um, kind of specialize in, in one quality and, and, and feel as though that that's the path to concentrate on. So if you, you, know, if you learn certain Rebbe's, you can really become like an expert in, in certain kind of like um, you know, ways of Avodah Hashem, specific ways of serving God. So Breslov Rebbe Nachman, is all about serving God through joy right? And, and, and that joy leads to expanded consciousness, which, which enables you to do all sorts of different things. And he says that basically, a person is born in this state. And then we get kind of stressed out to use like, you know, modern terminology, right? And then it kind of throws us, but that a person is created in this place of joy. So, so it's something that we have to sort of recover and, and return to, and, and with that in mind, the whole idea of tshuva, when we talk about, you know, see, you know, I've, I've mentioned it before that, 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 that one of the world's worst translations is the word for tshuva, which means to return, is translated as repentance, right? Like, like if anyone tells you to repent, turn and run as fast as you can, Right? repent is just like, I mean, I can't imagine more negative associations with that. But that's not actually what the Torah is ever saying. The Torah, the Torah is saying, return. So 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 people say, you know, you want me to keep Shabbos, you want me to keep kosher, you want me to, whatever it is, put on tefillin, light like candles, whatever it is. Why are you trying to make me into something that I'm not? Right? Why, why are you doing that to me? And we say, "That's what are you talking about? Rav Cook explains, the word is return. You're not becoming someone other than who you are. You are returning to who you are. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. So, so this idea of tshuva, of return, is also to return to a state of joy, which is where we were initially. So now with this as kind of a very long introduction, I want to talk about something that I learned from um, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver in Or Torah, uh, which is a commentary on Milo Satora, um, which was written by the brother of the Vilna Gon, And and um, just in a, an amazing, amazing, fantastic, beyond genius, totally inspired level commentary. And um, so I'll tell you, and he was a, a very great Kabbalist as well. So Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, Um, points us to this idea of humility. And and I want to show you some things about humility and the greatness of humility, the power of humility. And he makes reference to something. You know, in English, we refer to it um, as the verses of blessing. So there's a section of the prayer book. uh, In Hebrew, we call it V'yiten Lecha, and it's something that a person says after, after, uh, after Shabbos. And the Rimenover Rebbe, one of the greatest Hasidic masters, says, I don't know how a Jew has livelihood, has any parnosa who doesn't say vi'it and l'cha. Mm-hmm. So from here you see from him that, that it's a blessing for, for livelihood as well to say it. So what is v'yit and l'cha? It actually goes on. It takes a, a while to say. It takes a good five minutes to say. But it's... Um, it's, it's Basically, the greatest hits of blessings from all of Tanakh. Um, Meaning to say that, that it's like, you know how they on radio stations they say just the hits, right? So this is like an excerpt of just all of the blessings from all over the Torah. And you just kind of read through them. And it's just blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. A very nice thing to read. It puts you in a good state of mind right when the week is starting, you know? And at the end of the they bring a section from, uh, from uh, Gomorrah Megillah. And, and it's Rabbi Yochanan from the Gomorrah brings a tremendous insight. And he shows you how this is in all parts of the Torah. And how it's in the Chumash, how it's in the Navi, how it's in Ksuvim as well. And, um, And this phenomena, this insight, is that where you find God referring to his greatness, you also find immediately after, like it goes right into it, it's the next, the exact next sentence, the exact next thought, in each of these three instances, right, you find that God is with the orphan and the widow and the poor person and the destitute person. Right, so let me give you an example. It says, now this is in the Chumash. If you want to look this up, it's um. Let's see, it is in Devarim, in Deuteronomy 10:17, and then it's followed by 10:18. Okay, so it's the the two verses in a row. So now listen to this. Um, the, the 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 language of grandeur, and then you'll see it's immediately followed by how God is with um. You know, the, the person who's in a, on a, in, in a very sort of oppressed place. So for Hashem, your God, he is the God of heavenly forces and the master of masters, the great, mighty, and awesome God who shows no favoritism and accepts no bribe. All right. Now, immediately after it's written, he performs justice for orphan and widow and loves a stranger to give him food and clothing. And so in in different words, that's repeated in each section of Tanakh, in each section of the Torah. So so Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haber explains something very deep about this. He says this is more than just like a great catch, so to speak, a great observation that Rabbi Yochanan has made. Wow, look, it talks about God's greatness, and then right afterwards, each time it talks about how he's with the destitute. Isn't that amazing, right? It's more. It's way more than that. It's way more than that. So Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver explains the following. He says, "Don't you understand this as creation itself? That 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 God. Here, let's well let's hear it in the words of Rabbi Yochanan. Wherever you find the greatness of Hakadosh Baruch Hu of Hashem, there you find His humility." Okay. So, so now let's look at creation. Let's look at creation. And I was I was thinking, we were talking about it yesterday, just the this the whole concept of the speed of light, right? But if you let's say you're in a very dark room and you open up a curtain, like that instant, that that instant the entire room is filled with light. Right? All the way You don't watch light travel slowly across the room, and it's like, oh, it's almost light on the other side of the room. No. You open up the curtain, it's light on the other side of the room. Because basically, more or less, nothing travels faster than light. Light travels a ridiculous speed. Right? So now we have something known as a light year. Now, a light year might sound like a a measure of time, but it's not. It's the amount of time light travels over the course of a year. Now, can you imagine how fast it travels in a moment? How, how far do you think it travels in a year? I mean, we're talking about in a moment. It basically fills a giant place, right? That's just one moment. That's not even a day. That's not even a month. What do you think? How far do you think it travels in a year? So the world itself, the universe itself, is like trillions of light years. I mean, do you have any concept of how big the universe is? Trillions of light years. And yet, a person can stand in the world and say, where is God? Because God, in his humility, amidst his grandeur, God, in his humility, conceals himself. And you say, well, is that, is that humility? Yeah, it's humility. Can you imagine such an awesome creature gives us free choice and then allows us to do things that he doesn't want? That is astonishing humility, astonishing humility. So, so Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver points out, and, and, and Rabbi Yochanan puts it that where you find his greatness, you find his humility. In that verse that I read you, God is the master of masters, right? And yet he's with the poor person and the widow and the orphan, Right? So Rav Yitzchak Isaac Haver says that this humility of God is the core dynamic of creation itself, and that if you want to really tap into the ultimate reality, if you want to be in harmony, we talked about that tshuva means to return. So what does it mean to return? To return to this place of joy that we're created with, right? If you, if if a person wants to put themselves in harmony with the universe they also have to be in a place of humility because if god is in a place of humility we also have to be in a place of humility so what does it mean what does it mean for a person to be humble so so let me contrast the sort of secular definition of humility with the torah understanding of what humility is because when we think of humility We tend to think of a person, sort of, we we tend to think of, um, like, excuse me, like, be humble, you know, don't take any pride in your accomplishments, (laughs) you know what I mean? Don't, don't, like, don't, even if you're really good at something, you know, pretend that you're not. It's not really the Torah understanding of humility at all. And I bring you a story from the Gomorrah, one of my favorite Gomorras, which is that when Rebbe died, Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, who put together the whole Mishnah, was one of our greatest uh, leaders ever. So when, when, when Rebbe died, the sages were sitting around a table, and they said, you know, now that Rebbe is gone, humility has left the world. And there was like a silence. And one of the rabbis there, Rabbi Yosef, said... No, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> Meaning humility hasn't left the world because I'm around. Right? That's what he said to them. And the other rabbis thought and they said, Yeah, he's right. Rav Yosef is still here. We're okay. <laughs> now, why is that a funny story? Right? It sounds like a funny story. Why is that a funny story? Because you would think that if he really was so humble, the last thing he should have said was that he was humble. And then if he did say he was humble, then the sages should have said, what you, What are you talking about? The very fact that you said that you're humble means that you're not humble, right? That's not what happened. He said that he was humble and they agreed. You see, so from, from that you see that, um, that if you have an ability, you should recognize that you have an ability. And that denying one's talents or the gifts that God gave a person is not called being humble. That's a weird form of lying or false modesty or something like that. You have to acknowledge your gifts. But it goes deeper than that. A person has to understand that they are not the final authority. And that's really... And that a person is answerable in everything that they do. In everything they do. Everything, across the board. Moment to day to night, night to day. Because the moment that a person thinks that, no, this is my life and this is me and this is mine and all the rest, they create they disconnect themselves from reality because they make themselves into an independent figure who isn't answerable. And at that point, they've separated themselves from this core dynamic of creation, which is humility. It's very interesting in Parsha Shmini, We know we have the story of Nadav and Avihu. And Nadav and Avihu are the, sons, the two eldest sons of Aaron. And they make a big mistake. It came from like a fantastic place. They were trying to do something really beautiful and great. But they made a big mistake and, they, and a fire, another fire comes down. Two kind of like wisps of fire. It, it says went up their noses and just took their souls and they died on the spot. Because they were basically next up after the dedication of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, and it says that they kind of... Well, the truth is is that there's a whole laundry list of opinions of what they did wrong. But it's very instructive and very interesting. And Rashi, of course, knew all of the opinions. What's the first opinion that Rashi cites? The very first opinion that Rashi cites is that they paskined halacha, meaning that they reached a decision in Jewish law on their own in front of Moshe and Aaron. So and just no, no. They made themselves the final authority in front of Moshe and Aaron. It doesn't work. That that doesn't work, just doesn't work. You know, in Torah, we call our Torah masters Talmidei Chachamim, which is translated as a wise student. Which, if you think about it, is you know you could say, well, that's quite an insult. You know what I mean? When I was nine years old, I was a wise student. Now I've been through this, and what are you calling me a student for? Now I'm a teacher, not a student. But that's not, that's not our tradition. We say our greatest people are wise students. See, that keeps the ceiling open. That means that a person is... If, because what does a student imply? That there's a teacher. right? If you're a student, that means that there's a teacher. That means there's something always above you. Right. A person can't advance in, in, in reality, especially in in, in 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 the Torah in the Torah way, without always understanding that there's something above them. And so this is why it says fascinating. It says in, I believe it's in Gomorrah Sotah. It says in the Gomorrah that in the presence of arrogance, because how are we defining arrogance right now? We're defining arrogance as saying that in this area or at this moment or in my life or however you want to contextualize it, I am the final authority and I don't answer to anyone. Right? So it says in a place of of arrogance, of gaiva, is the word in Hebrew, in a place of gaiva, God can't can't hang around. Like nothing throws off God or distances God's presence more than gaiva, more than arrogance. And we see why here. Because if the core dynamic of creation is humility, right? once a person decides that I'm the final authority, They've cut themselves off from God at that moment, right? So at that moment, when 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 Nadav and and again, I want to emphasize their greatness, and I'm not Chas v'Shalom. I mean, judging them in any way. Who am I to judge them? In fact, right afterwards, it said Moshe says, "You you see from this," and it's a bit of a technical explanation. I'm not going to go into it. But but Moshe says, "You see from this." that they're even greater than you and me are. So Moshe says that the two of them are even greater than Moshe and Aaron. Not only that, but Kabbalistically, the Zohar says that their souls went into the soul of Pinchas, and that Pinchas becomes Eliyahu, and Eliyahu announces Mashiach. So you see that the soul line um, of Nadav and Avihu is to become Eliyahu and Avihu announces Mashiach. So there's no question about their greatness. And yet at this moment, when they made themselves, so to speak, the final authority, right? They paused, they decided what the law was in front of Moshe and Aaron. Boom, gone. Like dead on the spot, you know. So so what does it mean in our lives? What does it mean in our lives? You see, one of the things that I just uh, really don't understand um, is, 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 is that a lot of people feel as though if I follow halacha, if I follow the mitzvahs of the Torah, somehow this is going to rob me of my humanity, make me into a robot, rob me of my dignity, Right, rob me of my individuality. I have to call the shots. But you see, it's like, one of my favorite examples is is that one of the thickest chapters, volumes of the Talmud is is Gamor Sukkah. And to build a sukkah, you see that there's so many laws, it's so exhausting, and yet everybody knows that with all those laws, there's no two sukkahs that look the same. So so you would think that that would be the best example of of, oh, now I'm a robot. I am following Torah law. I am a robot. <laughs> and yet you see that the Mitzvah that's got probably the most halachas attached to it. Every single person makes one that looks different. In other words, your individuality, your personality, can't help but to come through. It's going to come through. You know, it's. I, I always think of this quote from Elvis Costello. He had he, him and his band, the the Attractions. You know, he said, "You know, we we were just kind of playing the songs like like everyone else, but." When we play them, they sound different. <laughs> when you when you go through your life just by virtue of really God's greatness, because you know it says that Gomorrah says, look at the create the creative power of God. When we mint a coin, every coin looks the same. But when God mints people, every single one looks different. <laughs> Why do we all look the same? Because we're not, and we're in no jeopardy, by the way, of that not coming through. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't certain teachers who are, you know, for want of a better word, lousy teachers, (laughs) whose job it is to make you into a cookie cutter version of what they have in mind. They exist, but they're not representing the authentic tradition. They aren't. They aren't, you know? It's um, you know, one of the Ger Rebbe's, one of the Ger Rebbe's, like when he first became Rebbe, he did something different from his father, and um, who was also Rebbe, and they came up to him and they said, "Your father did it th- the other way," and he said, he said, "If I wanted to be just, you know, like uh, if, if I didn't allow myself to do something different, right?" I wouldn't deserve to be Rebbe. In other words, if I'm not someone who's realizing who I am, right? and of course, he wasn't doing something against halacha. they had, had a certain tradition at this point, and he wanted to institute another tradition, right? He wanted to do it a different way. But that, for him, was an expression of his individuality in a great way, which is the very reason why he is the Rebbe. Not that he's doing something wrong. so so this idea of humility, see, see this is this is a further extension of it now people people think, especially in our generation, now that sort of like the kind of after the holocaust and and through all the long exiles and things like that and you know, it's been such a rocky last several hundred years that, that um, so, many, so many authentic traditions and, and, and what it is that we're, we, what, what, what we represent and the, the life and our, our vision of the world has so been kind of tortured and mangled and, and, and lost that, that people really in all walks of life are born and they, they feel as though they have to start from scratch. In terms of understanding the world. And so we've sort of reached this default level of understanding that the world is whatever you think it is. And you know, you know, and my version of the world exists, and your version of the world exists. And there's something to that, because there's there is something called subjective reality. And subjective reality means that, you know, the way you think is not the way I think, and the way you see it is not the way I see it. And if this person is scary to you, he might not be scary to me, but in your subjective reality scary to you, then you are authentically scared. I can't tell you, don't be scared, if you find that scary, right? But then there's something called objective reality. And that's what we've really lost touch with. That there actually is a legitimate structure to the universe where we can say certain things exist certain things are true and this is the this is the world that we inhabit right we can say there is one god there are no other powers we can say god is good We can say these things. And if a person wants to steep themselves in the proper context of reality, we have to teach these things and people have to understand them. Because then that gives you terra firma. It gives you firm ground in which to conduct your life on. So so let let me continue. You see, there's a ride in Disneyland. I think it's called Autotopia right? And um, what it is, is it's like it's, you're, you're on a car, which is on a rail, okay? But the wheels are on the ground, I guess, more or less. But you're just really going according to the rail, okay? Whatever way the rail goes, that's the way the car is going. Except you have a steering wheel and you can turn the steering wheel every, any way you want. So you can turn it this way, but you're still going to go that way. Or you can turn it that way, or you're still going to go this way that's 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 what it is you know so you know little kids they're busy steering and you know you kind of just sit out the ride so it it hit me and um i just never thought of it in terms of this way before but we we have a similar dynamic in terms of our sort of our, our bodies and our souls if you will which is that the soul has a certain path that's the path of the soul and we're sort of that's sort of like the the rail that's leading the car, and the path of the soul is such that you know a lot of times we say we want to go this way, but the soul needs a certain fixing, the soul needs a certain experience, and the soul is going to go in the direction that it needs to go in order to accomplish its tikkun, and it's sort of like. To me, it was just another way of looking at life. You know? And, and sometimes that's really frustrating because I want to go this way. But the soul's taking me this way because this is, this is what must be done in order to bring the world closer to redemption, to bring my soul closer to fixing, right? On an individual level, on a more global level. Right. So so that can be very frustrating. Except if we understand that God is good. And that if my soul is sort of like being directed in a direction that I find frustrating at this point, I have to understand that whatever is taking place is in the context of God's goodness. That's, that's what I'm calling objective reality. That's what I'm calling grounding yourself in terms of the real reality of the world. Understanding that every single thing... Remember, like we were saying the other day, I, I wish I could quote the Rebbe, what he said to his, his, his chassid, don't say it's bad, say it's bitter. Right? big difference. Big difference. Don't say it's bad. Say it's bitter. Meaning, it doesn't mean that you enjoy it. But don't think that it's coming from a place of God's badness. It's just it's just hard at that moment, right? So, so with this in mind, maybe we'll close with this. I want to tell you another Gomorrah. And this is actually one of the most amazing Gomorrahs for me in the whole Talmud. I'm just going to say a little piece of it, okay? It's 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 much larger than this, okay? And um, basically, it goes like this. I'm going to start with part two, and then I'm going to give you the part before. It. Well, actually, let's start at the beginning. So, it was a time in Jewish history where where, where the where the um, taiva, the the strong desire for um, to worship idols, was really manifest. We don't. We don't really have it so much today, this this very strong pull for idol worship. And you can say, well, celebrity is idol worship, and money is idol worship, but I'm talking about bowing down in front of a wooden statue in order to make it rain, right? We don't really have that today. But they had it super strong, super strong, you know, a couple of thousands of years ago. It was really strong. So... The question is when did that turning point happen when when idol worship was basically that strong desire was was taken away, and the Gomorrah recounts an amazing amazing episode with the Anshe Knesset Now these were the super top leaders of the Jewish people, including prophets, okay and they they felt very oppressed by this desire that was on the nation to. To worship idols, they wanted to get rid of it, and they said to God, "You know, if you're giving this to us in order to give us reward for for not doing it, then we don't want it, and we don't want the reward." And 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 so. After they made that prayer and they had been praying and fasting for three days and three nights, a note falls down from heaven. This is what the Gemara says, right? This is in Masekhta Yuma. I think it's sixty-nine B. Um, and on the note it says "ms," which means truth, right? That's the seal of God is truth. So then, so they see their prayer was answered, and they see that a lion made out of fire. Runs out of the holy of holies, and they grab onto it and they take like some hair from the lion, so they kind of damage it, so to speak. And then there's more to the Gomorrah. okay? And it's it's really worth looking at. Maybe we'll talk about it another time, but let's just stop there for a moment. So, so they say that they they weakened the lion, this this yetsahara, this this urge for idol worship at that point, and at that point that this strong desire for idol worship basically left the world. Okay, the Gomorrah continues. But anyway, let's just go back for a moment. So when I was learning that, I thought to myself, wow, this was really an answered prayer. Like, maybe we can study this prayer for help for us for how to get a prayer answered. You know, what did they do right? I mean, a note falls from heaven after they prayed, and it says truth on it, and they're able to turn around this desire for idol worship? Like, what did they say well, that was so good? Well, they were fasting for three days and three nights and davening for three days and three nights. Let's not let's not forget about that part. But I thought it was very interesting that they began with this view of the world and they began with this view of God, which was, God, if you're giving this desire to us, which was a, a an oppressive desire to want to do the wrong thing, right? To worship idols, right? If you're giving this desire to us, it must be because you want to give us reward for not falling prey to it. Now, do you hear how beautiful a understanding of God's goodness that is? In other words, God, I'm suffering right now. We're suffering right now. Why are you doing this to us? No, why are you doing this to us? no. You know what? It can only be one thing, God, because you're good. You want to give us reward. You want to give us reward right now. And 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 the way that we're going to be able to get this reward is not falling prey to this desire. Now, to me, that's that's a phenomenal. That's a phenomenal thing that. I, I feel as though in there you see that they set the stage for an answered prayer because they were grounding themselves in reality. They were starting with this standpoint of God's goodness. And then it yields this these tremendous results. So, so let's just wrap it all up. We began by saying that When the fire came down to the Mishkan, right, the first reaction was that people broke out in song, and then they fell on their faces. First, people broke out in song, and that joy is our natural state, and that when a person does tshuva, which is not repentance, right, tshuva is return, return to who we really are, right. Then we put ourselves into the context, the proper context of the universe. And what is the context of the universe? What is the core dynamic of the universe? Is God's humility. That where you find his greatness, like because this world is, you know, giantly, enormously, ridiculously huge. And yet God removes himself. He he hasn't put his signature, like a, a painter puts his signature on a painting, which is appropriate, you don't see like on every ant, God's, you know, like initials, like on the small ones, I'll just put my initials, right, you know? You know, you don't, you, you don't see it, God is like anonymous, and like, I mean, if I did a billionth of what God did, I'd be like standing on like, you know, a bench, like, you know, pointing to myself, you know what I mean, holding a sign over my head that says, clap, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, like, Really? Like, look what God has done, and yet he remains anonymous? It's awesome. I mean, beyond humility. And this is why we have to be so careful in terms of um, arrogance. Because when we're arrogant, we cut ourselves off from the core dynamic of the universe. When we don't understand that we're answerable for everything, that there's some, something above us, Always. Because that's the natural state. That's the organic state of a human being, is that we live within God, right? And that we don't want to ever separate ourselves from that. And that, that, that one of the ways to, uh, to keep in that place is to keep that objective reality in mind at all times, which, fundamental to that, is understanding God's goodness. And that when we understand God's goodness... Even when our soul kind of leads us to places where we might need a tikkun and things like that, which is frustrating and everything like that, we understand that it's bitter, but it's not bad. Because it's all within God's goodness. Now I'm going to tell you one final thing, just as to me this blows my mind. I hope you like it too. Again from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver. Okay, just to wrap it all up with one super strong idea. The word in Hebrew... For humility, is anava. Okay, and again, we're saying that the power of humility, with 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 anava, with humility, you're actually able to tap into the right the core energy of creation. Right now, we know that anava is spelled ayin nun vav he. Okay, ayin. Nun vav So Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says, look at this in humility. Look at look at the, the greatness. Ayin is the number 70. There's 70 faces to the Torah. Nun is the number 50. We have what's called the 50 sharibina, the 50 gates of understanding, right? Vav is six. That's the six orders of the Mishnah, right? That's the whole oral law. And He is five. That's the five books of the Torah. So who was the most humble person in the history of the world? Moshe. And what was Moshe able to do? He was able to bring down the entirety of the Torah. Right? And this is is what happens. This is the power that happens when we're able to actually... Properly contextualize ourselves within creation, which is not a denial of our dignity. It's fully plugging into who we are and what we are in terms of the objective reality of existence and making the most of ourselves in the realist way. You see, this is why Rabbi Green taught that, that if a person really wants to understand what the Torah is saying, they have to undergo a process called tikkun hamidos meaning fixing your personality traits, right? And one of the most important aspects of that is to reach this level of true humility, which, again, doesn't mean denial of one's talents, right? Because Rabbi Yosef says, I'm humble. And they all said, yeah, you're humble. You know what I mean? Even if you're humble, you can acknowledge that you're humble, right? But it's understanding that, you're, that there's something above you at all times. Now, listen to this, and we'll really finish with this. You see... What happens is a lot of people make this big mistake. They think that my ability to understand the Torah, there's a one-to-one correspondence with my level of intellect, right? This is what people think. And the smarter a person is, the more they're gonna understand the Torah. It's absolutely incorrect. It's absolutely incorrect, right? It can be an aid for sure, but it's not, there is not a one-to-one correspondence. Because a person can be very brilliant. And yet they can have this attribute of anger. They're very angry. Right? They're brilliant. But they're very short-tempered. And then when they read the Torah, what they're going to do is they're going to project their personality onto the page. And that's what they're going to read back. But when a person has this quality of humility, right? Right? then all of a sudden it's like they disappear and then the text speaks to them right okay